0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 10 and concluding at verse 30. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed On the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. And again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like... Yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you, or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you, or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers! There will be weeping there, and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first, who will be last thus far. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now we turn to Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And you'll notice how question 20 mirrors what we read in Luke 13. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perish through Adam? No, only those are saved by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. His faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in summary? What are these articles? Well, we shall confess these articles this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ... We have witnessed yet another baptism, and that's a great thing. To be sealed in the name of the triune God is one of the greatest blessings in the Christian life. To know that God is there right at the beginning of your life already, what a comfort. And yet you may wonder in the midst of all of this whether or not the form for baptism does not say too much perhaps promise too much or speak too optimistically? For instance, parents are asked to agree with the idea that their children are sanctified in Christ. Can they do that? Can they treat their infants as if they are holy already? And that's not all. What about the prayer at the end of the form? Can we really pray, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins, that they have been received as members of your only begotten Son and that God has so adopted us to be his children? In saying those kind of things, are we not saying far too much? Are we not getting ahead of ourselves when we speak about infants as forgiven, as being members, as adopted? Why, we don't even know whether these children will walk in the ways of the Lord. And we are assuming already that they will. It may not be a case of presumed regeneration, but perhaps is it a case of presumed salvation? My beloved, as we look together at the form for a moment, you need to keep in mind what it says at the top of page 585, namely that in this sacrament we are dealing with a covenant consisting of two parts: a promise and an obligation. And what is the promise? What does God commit himself to doing? Well, you've heard it read. God commits himself to adopting. Christ commits himself to saving. The Holy Spirit commits himself to renewal. And and what is the obligation? Well, God expects this child and all of his children to live a life of new obedience, to cling to him, to trust in him, And to love him. Why, he even expects exclusive love as well as persevering love. And so you see, promise and obligation go together. Yes, and the same goes for the prayer at the end of the form. The first paragraph is filled with promise. All of the things that God will do, intends to do, is pleased to do. And again, the second paragraph is filled with obligation. The obligation of the parents to nurture. The child's obligation to grow and increase in the Lord Jesus Christ. To acknowledge God's fatherly goodness and mercy. To live in all righteousness. And to valiantly fight against and overcome sin, the devil and his whole dominion. And so you can see, beloved, that in this sacrament, promise and obligation go hand in hand. But of course, you're probably wondering, well, what does all of this have to do with Lord's Day 7? Well, the connection, I think, is not that hard to see. For what's another word for obligation? Is another word Faith. In and through our baptism, God is calling us to faith, to true faith, to a living faith. And so let's look at that obligation, that obligation of faith. I preached to you on the theme, the wonder of true faith. We're going to consider together true faith's necessity, We'll also look at true faith's description and finally true faith's content. Well, beloved, you can see that Lord's Day 7 opens with a question which is all about the necessity of faith. It asks, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? And now, it's almost as if in that particular question, you hear a serious catechism student thinking things through. And first, he or she is thinking about what the catechism has been saying in the Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4 about Adam, about his disobedience, about how he himself got into a lot of trouble and dragged us into a lot of trouble as well. It says, thanks to Adam, we find ourselves corrupt, conceived, and born in sin, unable to do any good, inclined to all evil, robbed of all gifts. And there's more. For thanks to Adam, we also find ourselves under judgment, a temporal and eternal judgment, it says in Lord's Day 4. In other words, there's a whole lot of bad and ugly news here. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. For after sin and misery comes deliverance. After the first Adam comes the second Adam. And what does Christ the second Adam do? He acts as mediator. As God's specially appointed and anointed mediator. Adam too comes... And he undoes the damage of Adam number one. Now, if that's the case, what's the conclusion? What's a good student supposed to think? Why, of course, just as in Adam, everybody died, so now in Christ, everybody is going to be made alive. There's this symmetry here, you see. Mankind has been rescued. We're all off the hook. We can all breathe a massive sigh of relief. But not so fast, says the catechism to the student and to us. All men and women may be in Adam, but are all men and women really in Christ? And you know, to this, some people say yes. Yes. We call such people universalists. They believe that no one will perish, no one will come under judgment, everyone will be redeemed and saved. They deny the reality of hell or of everlasting punishment. And they claim there is only heaven, only eternal bliss. Now, it should be said that there were no universalists around in the strict sense of the word in the time the catechism was being written. But still, the prevailing theological and doctrinal sentiment of the time of the Reformation was pretty close to modern-day universalism. For what did a lot of people say? They said that all of those in the church who partook of the sacraments would be saved. Join the church, receive the water of baptism and receive grace, take hold of the bread of the Lord's Supper and receive more grace, and you will be saved. You see, it boiled down to a kind of church universalism. As long as you belong to the church, as long as you accepted what the church taught, as long as you did what the church told you to do, you would be saved. But is that true? Is that biblical? Is that a right way to think about these things? Absolutely not. You know, beloved, answer 20 really comes out with a loud no No, and you can't hear it because it's been toned down in the present translation, but but really, it should be there. In the original text, the answer comes across as a shout, no way, certainly not. There is no symmetry here. It's not so that all who are in Adam are also in Christ. It's not so that all who are in the church are automatically saved because the church puts their rubber stamp of approval upon them. Now something else is needed. Needed if you are in the church and really in the church, and that is faith, true faith personal faith and commitment in order to be saved you and i need christ we need to believe in him we may affirm what the church confesses what we believe not in the church We believe in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, beloved, there isn't any other way. True faith is a must. True faith is a necessity. It has to be there. According to John 1, 12, you can't claim to be a child of God really and truly without it. And according to John 3 verse 6, you will not see the kingdom of God without it. And according to John 3:18, you will stand condemned without it. You and I, as well as Jaina who was just baptized, we all need to believe to believe in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, of course, you may wonder, who are we and who are those who believe? You might expect the Catechism to have answered those who are elect or they whom God has decreed to set aside, but it doesn't say that. Instead, it says those who are saved are those who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Notice two things here. First, the saved are grafted into Christ and And I think we, by now, hopefully, we we know and recognize that language. That's the language of John 15. That's the language of the vine and the branches. And it reminds us that branches are taken and grafted into the vine and live and produce fruit. And so it has to be with us. As believers, as people, we need to be transplanted into the great vine. Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will not live. We shall not live. And we cannot produce fruit. But fine, can we do that ourselves? Can we engraft ourselves into the vine, Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is no. This is something that only God can do. By nature, we are dead in sin and trespass. And only, remember, Lord's Day 3, only the Holy Spirit can make us live again and unite us to Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2 that faith is a gift, a gift from God, a gracious gift. From God. The fact that we are grafted into Christ is God's work to us, for us, and in us, and all that without us. But where does that leave us? Are we then totally and utterly passive in all of this? Well, beloved, you might say, in the grafting in, we are, as it were, passive. But, you know, there's also that other thing, that other thing which is explained by those words, accepting all of his benefits. Because those who are saved accept God's benefits. And that means that they, they work with them, they apply them, they embrace them, they love them. That is what Paul means when he writes to the believers, telling them to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what the writer to the letter to the Hebrews means when he urges his readers to make every effort to enter into the rest. Yes, and that too is what the form for baptism means when it talks about cleaving to this one God, about trusting Him and and loving Him with our whole heart and soul and mind. True children of God accept what He gives them, and they work every day with what God gives them. And that's what happens in our baptism as well. For then God comes to us with Himself and with His gifts of adoption, salvation, and sanctification, graciously, sovereignly, mercifully, He comes. And then what does He want of us? Isn't it so that God wants us to grab hold of whatever it is that he gives us? That he wants to see in our lives this immense relief, this great enthusiasm, and this deep joy? He expects us to grab hold of it all, with fear and trembling, and then to run with it and revel in it. After all, these are benefits, these are blessings, these are riches. And what does one do with them but receive them with gratitude and enjoy them forever? Accept all his benefits. But then, beloved, if true faith is about being grafted into Christ and accepting his benefits, what is true faith? What's it made of? What does it look like? Well, I think you know answer 21 steps up to the plate here, and it's a most beautiful answer. And I would say to you this morning, this is one of those answers that you should read over and over, commit to your mind and to your heart, and you should apply it every day. And a way, it's like good medicine. It'll help you through the sick and the thin of life, the ups and the downs, the mountains and the valleys, the trials and the temptations. True faith is a sure knowledge, whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to, me, to us in his word. And at the same time it's a firm confidence that not only to me but also to others God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. What's true faith? Knowledge. Confidence. Not first knowledge you got to know this, 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 and then perhaps confidence, no, both together. And it's also more. It's a sure knowledge and a firm confidence. This isn't vague knowledge we're speaking about. This isn't wishy-washy confidence that we're dealing in. No, there is certainty here and there is steadfastness. And where does the certainty come from? It comes from God and His Word. It's the Word that teaches me about God, about creation, about who I am, about my past, about my needs, about my Savior, about my salvation. The world in which I live in is awash in speculation about a host of things. You read about it every day in the newspapers. People constantly arguing about the meaning of this and the significance of that. And they really don't get any further. But you and I, we know because the Bible tells us so. And therefore, we stand on solid ground, the solid, holy, incontestable ground of God's inspired and infallible Word. And we can say, I know. I know not because I'm so smart and not because I'm so perceptive, but I know because I accept the testimony of the Word of God. And so, beloved, true faith consists of a sure knowledge. But it also consists of something else, a firm confidence. A firm confidence in what? A firm confidence in myself and in my achievements. No, a firm confidence in God. And in what God has done. Now, let's just take that apart for a moment. What has God given to others, to me? You notice the Catechism talks about three things. Forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. And if you think of it, doesn't that kind of capture it all? First, God deals with my sinful past. Then he deals with my present status. And then he deals with my future hope. Or look at it another way. First of all, God deals with my greatest need, which is sin. And thereafter, God deals with Christ's greatest gift, which is righteousness given to me. And then finally, God fills me with His greatest blessing, which is salvation. And that word salvation captures it all. For, beloved, what is the forgiveness of sins but my greatest need? And what is everlasting righteousness but Christ's greatest gift? And what is salvation but God's greatest blessing? You see, God gives it all. He gives me all I need and He gives me so much more. But you might ask, why? Why? Why does God do this? How does God do this? What enables Him to make others and to make me so rich? And notice that, again, the answer is in the answer. And there's only one answer, and it is found in the words Christ merits. The only reason that you and I get to enjoy all of these fantastic riches is because Christ Jesus has earned them all for us. We never could. We never would. Left to ourselves, we are, really, we are poor, wretched, miserable sinners. I know you don't like that language. But that's the reality of what we are by nature. But in Christ, and thanks to Christ, we become the richest of people. Every year, Forbes magazine gives us a list of the richest people in the world. And by now you know that Bill Gates is usually number one and Warren Buffett is usually number two. And then a lot of other people fight it out after that. But you know, in actual fact, the list is all wrong. Because it only counts material riches the kind that go up and down with the stock market, the kind that you can't take with you, stick in your casket beside you, or in a suitcase. But you know, there are other riches, better riches, that Forbes does not and cannot count. And why? Well, because they're spiritual riches. They're the riches that the children of God have in Jesus Christ. And as Peter reminds us in his opening chapter of his first epistle, they're the kind that don't fade away. And they don't waste away. And they last forever. Truly we are. The riches of people. And of course that brings one last question to the fore and that is why? Why in the world does God do all of this for us? What's the reason? Well, you know, really we don't know. Or let me rephrase that and say, the only thing we know is one thing, and that is the word grace. It's all because of the grace of our God. And what is grace but utterly undeserved, un Earned, unachieved, unimaginable love and favor. And beloved, grace is the operative principle and the bottom line that drives everything in the church and the kingdom of God. And grace really isn't a word to explain because really we can't explain it but it's one of those words that you embrace and that you savor and that you just sing about. Grace. God's amazing, truly amazing grace. So what am I firm about? What am I confident in? I'm firm about God and His gifts to me. I'm confident about Christ and His work in me and for me. I am firmly confident that God's grace will, in the words of John Newton, at last bring me home. And why am I so sure and so certain, so firmly and truly confident? Don't ask me. I don't know ask the Holy Spirit. After all, He works it in my heart. He works it in my heart by the gospel. And so you see something about faith's necessity, faith's description, a little at least. That leaves only one thing very briefly, and that's faith content. What's the substance of true faith? Now, I could give it to you dogmatically, and that would mean saying something about all the various locuses or lotzi of theology, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of man, of Christ, of salvation, of the Holy Spirit. You know, theologians have this kind of neat way of systematizing almost everything. Well, you'll notice that's not the pro- approach of the catechism. Well, I even suspect that, and I can't prove it, of course, but I, re- I really suspect that here, wise old Frederick III looked over the shoulders of people like Erzinus and Alevianus and a bunch of other theologians, and, and he probably said, boys, leave that theological stuff to the classroom. And let's just speak about one thing. The main thing, promises. All that a Christian needs to believe are the promises of God. The promises of the gospel. Ah, you ask, well, what promises? Is that really so hard? Has the church of all ages not... Digested and debated and died for the gospel. What has the Catholic Church of Christ said and confessed about the heart of the gospel? The answer, beloved, is in our oldest creed and confession, the Apostles' Creed. And all of its promises, I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in God the Holy Spirit. It's in these articles, beloved, that you find the heart and the center and the soul of your faith. And that's why you should say them and recite them and sing them and believe them. Confess them and shout them. And teach your children, by the way, to do the same thing. Yes, teach your sanctified children to do the same. And, beloved, that doesn't mean, that question doesn't mean that we consider every baptized child automatically saved. It means that we consider that child, also Jaina, set apart, claimed by God, living under the grace of His promises every day the God who calls her and who calls all of us to respond, to embrace, to love and rejoice in what he gives us in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web